everyone. Amelia Taylor-Hockberg here, Archinex Editorial Manager. We've got some special bonus Archinex Sessions content for you. Back in September, Archinex covered an exhibition at Los Angeles's Architecture and Design Museum called, simply enough, Shelter. In response to the city's housing crisis, investment in public transportation, and its growing population, the curators asked six local architects to come up with new forms of residential architectures, focused primarily on two highly scrutinized LA spaces. One, the LA River, where Frank Gehry as master planner is ruffling a lot of feathers. And two, the stretch of Wilshire Boulevard, where Peter Zumtor's Lachma inkblot will be spilled, and where a new Metro subway extension is also currently being dug. The exhibition wrapped up on Friday, November 6, and to close it out, the curators held two panel discussions with the featured architects, one focusing on the river and one on Metro. Mimi Zeiger, West Coast editor of the Architects newspaper, moderated the panel on the river, and I moderated the one on Metro. We recorded the whole thing, and that's what you're about to hear. For more background on the works exhibited at Shelter, check out our feature on Archinect. It'll help to have a visual guide for the projects before delving into the podcast. Panelists on the River discussion included Jimenez Lai of Bureau Spectacular, Elizabeth Timmy of LA Moss, both of which have been on Archinect sessions before, and Lorcan O'Herlihy of Lorcan O'Herlihy Architects. The panel on Metro featured Jennifer Marmon of PAR, Bob Dornberger of Y, and Priscilla Fraser, senior architect at LACMA. In between the panels, you'll hear a short performance by local poet-urbanist Mike the Poet. Enjoy! So welcome to uh, A plus D Architecture and Design Museum, Los Angeles. I'm Tibby Dunbar, the executive director. Um, and I just wanted to, I'm just going to do a quick little welcome and make a couple little announcements and then hand everything off to the producers of the event tonight. And I want to say also thank you uh, to Danielle Rego and Sam Lubell for curating a most wonderful exhibition for us and for all the participating firms. This has been a great grand opening show. We've had wonderful feedback, great press, um, so thank you. I also want to thank tonight, um, and I know Sam's going to do the major exhibition sponsors, but I just want to do a little shout out to the um, Artist Co-op for sponsoring our bar this evening. And that's a co-op that's just down the street, so they're a neighbor, and it was just really lovely of them to come out and support this evening, uh, providing us with some beer and wine and water for you all. <coughs> Uh, one other little thing, we are doing a special tonight on the posters for Shelter. So tonight they are $10 all in, so don't miss out on that. Um, and I'll I think I'll pass it off to the next uh, person who's going to be speaking, and I don't even know who that is. Is that is that you, Sam? So this is Sam Lubell, co-curator with Daniel Rego of Shelter, and, um, and former board member and members of our exhibition committee, and and just general good friends of the institution. So thank you both again. Uh, it's a great turnout. Thank you everybody for coming by. Uh, last time I was here was a little warmer. This is perfect. This is good. Um, and uh, so yeah, we're, we're really, this is gonna be a fun little night here. Uh, it's a good way to celebrate the, the closing of the show. We wanna first of all, uh, thank all the teams most importantly, thank all the teams that put an amazing amount of work into these amazing pieces here. So let's have a round of applause, actually, for them. You really have no idea how much work went into this. We just kind of just sat there and said, good job. So uh, it was amazing, really amazing. And we also, we don't, we, we were going to start talking, listing all the sponsors, but we realized it would take like half uh, the time here, but the sponsors, uh, if you look at the title board around the corner there, there's a lot of them, and they, they we, we, we could not have done this without all the, all the sponsors for the show, so we want to thank them as well, um, and uh, we're just really, really thrilled with that. And then um, 
what we're going to do tonight, uh, and you're all at some point, you know, if you haven't seen the show, please do check it out because it's amazing. Um, and uh, But we're going to be having a little bit of an evening with two little panels, two short panels, and in the between we're going to have a little poetry break. Uh, so the first first panel is going to be uh, moderated by Amelia Taylor-Hockberg. Oh, is, oh, sorry, Mimi's doing Mimi Mimi Zeiger from Architects Newspaper, uh, who I know well and uh, a lot of you know well, is going to be moderating a panel on the river. Uh, and then Amelia Taylor-Hockberg from Architect is going to be moderating uh, the second panel. Uh, and then in between uh, is Mike, where's Mike the Poet? Mike the Poet, uh, a favorite of the museum. He does a lot of our urban hikes and he's an amazing poet, amazing performer. He's been doing a, a couple of short pieces uh, inspired by uh, Los Angeles and inspired by everybody here. So uh, that's going to be amazing. So uh yeah, I was just going to say, um, and both conversations and the poetry reading are going to be podcast at a later date um, by Archonnect. So thank you to them. So uh, let's start it off. Let's start it off with Mimi and uh, her panel from uh, all, all three teams uh, from the river. So why don't uh, you guys come up here and we can, Mimi can do all the. So the panelists for the LA River talk are Jimenez Lai of Bureau Spectacular, Elizabeth Tinney of LA Moss, and Lorcan O'Harelihy of Lorcan O'Harelihy Architects. So thank you. Can you hear me with the sound? Yes, no, hearing fine, good. I'll just talk a little louder, now they can hear. Oh, wow, what a great turnout. Thank you, Sam and Danielle and Tibby and everyone at the A&D for being here tonight. And what a great panel. I'm really excited to have you guys here. Um, like, it's my little place. It's my little home, this shelter that we're in. Um, I, what I want to start is, uh, because it's in the news and because we can't escape it and because you are defined as the river panel even though we are talking about housing, um, given everything that is going on at the river right now, uh, the Gary not a master plan, the bridges coming down, the sort of El Nino that's going to flood it all and make us reconsider what exactly that flood channel is there for, um, have you given thought over the last couple of months um, after producing these schemes how they might change or how they could adapt um, given this sort of new material that we're learning about the river. It's a highly political question. Uh, you like come out swinging, Mimi. Um, I, I think that we, we actually met yesterday with the Bloomberg Innovation team talking just about this because they wanted to know what our opinion was about all the different players along the LA River. And if we had a position about Frank Gehry and what we thought of that and if that was awesome. And um, you know, they asked me if there was a precedent for a good river project and I was like, well, Bill Bow, right? If we're gonna talk about Frank Gehry, we're gonna talk about Bill Bow. And it wasn't about redefining what that river was. It was about engaging it at an urban level and coming up under the bridge with the tail and you know, uh, looking at the paseo or the, the kind of public uh, pedestrian walkway 
my god, I feel like this thing is so super intense. I think it's gonna be the same bite. Oh, no, this is better, thank you. Um, and what Frank did, which was so great, and what I always really like about his projects when they're spot on, is that they're taking something that's inherently flawed and, and inhuman and anti-pedestrian and turning the volume up on that, but also offering you an alternative to view it. And it's not redefining anything. And so what I think would be really fantastic if Frank comes in and does is if he gives us vantage points to look at the river and to reflect on a time that we're no longer at. And we don't green it and make it all pretty and happy-go-lucky. And maybe housing isn't appropriate along the immediate river. Um, I, I, th I thought that when, when Frank came out with it, looking at hydrology, it was something that was relevant. Uh, I think the river is, it, which is something that we were pursuing since last January, was as an ecological resource for water management, among others. This is probably so um, it was interesting when it came out of it because it's something that we were really interested and passionate about, our whole team at our firm, including Ian Dickinson, who was amazing, and everyone else who worked on the project here. Uh, but so that idea uh, that the river is more than just should be beautification seen as a recreational asset, but more as an ecological asset was really important because we need water in the city and it's a global issue. So ultimately, I think the fact that there's a lot more interest in it right now, I think it's good because there is, there is a critical issue. And uh, in fact, I just, not, it's not working anymore, I don't think, there we go. But there was just an article recently that the city is now sp trying to retrofit houses to capture water. So ultimately, when the, uh, the community starts doing it, uh, means that you're probably pursuing ideas that are relevant. So that's why I think we were excited about the watershed component. So River is about uh, a very kind of crucial issue in Los Angeles, to, you have to embrace it not turn, your, turn yourself back to it. And also think densities, urbanization. It's okay to have housing around the river, I think. It's just how you tackle it, so. Um, if, the question <coughs> if the question is, would, would, would I have done the same project with, with the same knowledge that I know now, uh, it would obviously, obviously be no. It would not be the same project. I think uh, over the last several months, <coughs> I've, I've maybe, uh, uh, thought about the LA River a little more. Uh, what's kind of interesting about the, let's say, the, the concrete filling of LA River, which kind of, I guess, co uh, predates brutalism by about 20 to 30 years, uh, which also kind of predates uh, this, this uh, project from Paul Virilio and Claude Parent about the oblique principle, which I in a way, you know, the LA River is the ob oblique principle. Uh, it's a concrete surface that's at a certain angle uh, littered with uh, sensor graffiti and uh, now we're going to take the concrete away, uh, which hopefully is good or bad, not, not, not really sure. But I think had I done it again, it would be about that. Keep playing with the different mics. Um, you know, I think that I really admire that question I get to do, how different each of you guys interpreted just that, the, the, just the river. Um, and if I could be so bold as to sort of say your different approaches as sort of recognized in the show, um, I, I would say going actually from the 
like right, right, right to left. Um, he would go uh, speculative, pragmatic, and visionary. And I guess my question to you guys is, um, is this a correct categorization of your work and your approach? And what does it offer your practice or process? But also, like, if you could pick another one out of the three, you know, who would, who would you sort of graft yourself with or trade? Sure, I'll start. Um, visionary is the, 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 the tag that you slap on me. Um, no, but I would like to be pragmatic, if, if possible. I mean, like, I think everything that we, we do in the office, um, we, we think about the argument of the project, and therefore history is in the room. Every time we start a project, we think about who are we talking to, uh, who's of, of a lot of the people who are living and dead that we respect, uh, who, uh, who, yeah, what kind of conversations do we want to engage in and what sort of, you know, dialogues uh, do, do we want to make? But at the same time, we want to make it fit for the times of today. And uh, so I, I actually consider what we do to be really pragmatic and, and convenient to what we do. Um, <coughs> I was actually just talking to someone about this and I said well you have to realize that people don't think of me as an architect anymore because we are so um, we're so based in doing and learning through proof-of-concept projects that are pilots and um, I don't know I, when we it depends upon what audience we're showing this project to um, because my co-director is from planning and was the field uh, deputy for Hollywood with Garcetti, she looks at what we did as visionary mm -hmm. and bananas because we're taking something and saying it's collective housing in, in the backyard space. And we were looking at Team 10 and Primer and it was from that, that strain of architecture that we were developing a scale to be in dialogue with that body of work. Um, but I think because my co-director is based in kind of the, the policy design is the lens and policy is the driver, so in that sense, absolutely, I guess we are pragmatic. I could live with both, all three. <laughs> I don't think it's gonna work, is this working? Okay, there we go, so there we go. Uh, I like all three, I think LA is an area to speculate, so I like that word, that's why I came here 25 years ago. Uh, from New York, which was a challenging city to start your own practice. Um, uh, the idea that uh, once I think architecture or building tech uh, construction industry catches up with 3D printed components or possibilities and looking at skins of buildings that can absorb as opposed to reject are things that are somewhat visionary to be able to look for the construction industry to catch up with the more uh, critical issues like SIPs as well, which are foam-based uh, products that can actually capture, absorb water. These are things that I think are crucial. The pragmatics are that it's very pragmatic to deal with it. We capture 2% of the water in the city when it does rain, and given that it's a very volatile climate, one should capture as much as you can. So it makes, it's very pragmatic to actually use your houses and use structures that exist right now to capture it. So I think all three could exist. So I'd like to say we're, we're a speculative, um, uh, visionary, volatile, 
pragmatics. Here we go. Oh, trick question. I, I mean, but what came up actually kind of across all of you guys is well, personal history on one hand, but also just sort of like taking work from a history of architecture and sort of moving it down the line and sort of updating it. I mean, Jimenez, um, there were so many references to other artists, uh, other architects um, in your work, and maybe, you know, how do you feel about unpacking um, those, those kinds of uh, collages? So, uh, um <coughs> about a month ago, I, I finally marked the, the, the anniversary of moving to LA for one year. And uh, one of the attractions of coming to LA was, you know, my relationship with a lot of these movies that I used to love. Uh, and from, you know, learning from these movies and understanding, you know, how, let's say, narratives are stranded and uh, uh, made into several futures, uh, possibly based on several pasts. Uh, of course, I look at a lot of the artists. David Hockney made a, made a history and also produced several futures for people like Sam Jacob and, and others. And so um, when, when I think about history, I think about it as a fluid matter uh, that, that allows people to imagine several futures. And, and for me, uh, hopefully in the work that we, we reinterpret a lot of uh, the historical matter around Los Angeles and, and, and took, it, took it somewhere else, hopefully. I mean, I don't know if you're asking if, we're, if our work is nostalgic. No, actually. Okay. I mean, I guess, they, although nostalgia is something that comes up in Los Angeles a lot around mm -hmm. housing. Like, we kind of, I mean, now that you bring it up, we can't escape it mm -hmm. um, about what people think housing should be and where actually housing is going. Um, mm -hmm. we, can, we can go down that tangent. We can mm -hmm. sort of talk about, I thought your, the sort of reference to, say, like, Team 10 was actually kind of interesting and one mm -hmm. wanted to hear more. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting time. I feel very liberated from the period from 2000 to 2005 in which I went to undergrad. And we couldn't really talk about different parts of architecture history because we were telling ourselves that we were so avant-garde through uh, the digital lens. And, and parametrics were so um, fabulous that we were reinventing architecture, so why talk about the past? And I really loved the idea that we could be looking at the 70s and the 80s, and, but also, you know, uh, periods, you know, before that, and uh, be in dialogue with that. So I just, for me, it's more so refreshing to have a larger index and body of work to be speaking to and referencing. Um, and to be uh, arguing that Los Angeles has an inherent low density that's productive, that isn't New York or anywhere else. Chicago comes to mind, not to be snarky, but yeah, that it's this, it's its own thing. I do a lot of housing. <laughs> I, I know you do yeah. a lot of housing, and I, I was noticing with this project that it's mostly focused on the single family home and a transit hub, but you know, I, as we're sort of right behind us, or you're actually sitting in front of yours, um, you know, the idea of... We do build as well. Speculate. But, you know, what we, I could ask, how do you take something like this and translate it and make it real? 
but I could also sort of query about how do you take something like multifamily housing, which you're you know, quite good at, um, and where does that questioning come back to this? Uh, I think you, with any architecture, any design strategies, you have to look for the unexpected. And whether it's a housing project, as you say, there's a kind of convention that people assume. Uh, we, like all of us, we don't accept that. And uh, I often think architecture is the art of persuasion, so you can meet with clients and, and potential uh, uh, opportunities and have strong arguments for why you're doing it. So when we do an exhibition like this, it, we see this as part of what we've built as well. And it's, uh, it's something that you need both. You need to cross boundaries between both. Um, for me, housing in Los Angeles was, before the re recent 2000, was really appalling. In the 70s and 80s were multifamily. Uh, there are patrons now who have kind of transitioned from the single, uh, the home to uh, housing. And I think when you have people interested about rethinking that typology, that's really important. We've been fortunate enough to have people like that. So we do think it's an area to speculate and to push ideas right now. Because you deal with issues of public-private issues. When you do housing, as opposed to the home, you have the front yard and backyard. Whereas when you, when you embed an urban culture, you have adjacencies. You have people who live on your street and down the street who have issues with what you're building with regards to density. So I think that's all those uh, start to play a big role. So uh, to be able to kind of navigate that world and to negotiate good architecture in that is challenging. It's something that I think is, should continue and it is doing that. I think the work in Los Angeles with regards to housing has been getting stronger and stronger as the years go by. I mean, can you talk a little bit about your Dingbat, quote unquote Dingbat project? Because I think that it really sort of it tells us a lot about these questions of adjacencies. Yes. So uh, when, when I first arrived and discovered the Dingbat, uh, when I first arrived in Los Angeles and discovered the Dingbat uh, to a, an unsuspecting architecture enthusiast, I, I thought I was seeing a lot of Villa Savoy's. <laughs> and so I started maybe applying, you know, um, the five points of architecture onto the Dingbat and, and found that, yes, uh, the free facade kind of fits. Uh, there's some tailored we like qualify the roof matters such as you know uh, air conditioning and so forth to be a sculpture garden. Yeah, there is a roof garden, um, <laughs> and you know. So I, I started thinking about maybe the communal living aspect of the free plan, uh, which uh, contains the interior and, and, and a very strange social type, social uh, uh, relationship between inhabitants. So, which is why f when we developed the plan, we were thinking, let's make it normal on the outside and interactive on the inside. Let's make a, let's carve a hole so that, you know, people who are sharing these spaces would have a really big living room in some ways. And I guess, um, Elizabeth, sort of similarly, can you sort of talk about sort of the adjacencies that are just come out of granny flats when you are sort of putting sort of two domestic spaces in a single lot? The visual adjacencies? The visual, the spatial, or? cultural. <coughs> um, well, I think that we were purposefully um, representing each type as a hideous 
uh, over the cartoonish representation of different typologies of houses. So one is craftsman, one is bungalow, um, one is dingbat, one is um, like a kind of a brick masonry, uh, shitty stucco thing. And so we, we really like wanted our renderings to be garish because we wanted it to be quite clear that it was a strategy for access and density and it wasn't a refined architectural typology. Um, and that it was important to press on the communal aspect of things rather than the, uh, the, the mess of the architecture. And so we did things like kind of Gorda, Gordon Matta Clarking over existing illegal ADUs and um, created productive um, co-landscapes that relieved the density. And so it's kind of, if you look at the plan, it's a nodal strategy of shared access through. Um, and this idea that you get this kind of rooftop landscape and these relief moments on top of the illegal that we were legalizing by, ac by adding access to them. I, I think this issue of adjacencies, would, uh, what's most relevant to ours is, is that we've hybridized infrastructure and housing in our project. We, when one could see water as an infrastructural component, the way the city is framed, so to speak, is you separate. And I think the idea that you break that mold is very important. There's ways to start to tackle that. And infrastructure plays wears many hats, so to speak, and the idea of tackling this issue of water and using private and public uh, interstitial spaces and existing structures, uh, leftover spaces next to freeways and in between freeways become areas to speculate whether it's um, multiple scale propositions, whereas, uh, for example, the, the uh, transit hub is a much larger proposal. The uh, bladder house and the sponge house are smaller one that are scaled within the Elysian Valley area. Uh, the river uh, uh, bridge component, which is the ones capturing um, uh, metals and all kinds of um, debris in the river, is another approach. So I think that we can blur that boundary. Housing isn't one thing, and there are, uh, these other elements are not separate, or wholly separate. They're actually all Inter interweaved. We've done it with public parks on private land as well. We actually take this approach in all our work that you don't need to separate, but you can start to create hybrid conditions throughout the city. And it brings really interesting discussions to, to the table. How do you propose a, private par a public park on private land? Who's responsible if someone breaks their leg? Is it the people who own the land or the city that's running it? Things like that are kind of intriguing to the city. And that becomes for a very kind of fascinating uh, energy within the city that people are in a sense working together that we're not a privatized city anymore but we're actually something that is changing that equation so to speak and I think that's a really critical issue we have many proposals in our solution I'm not going to go every one of them but each one was speculating and looking at um, and I would say visionary in certain areas about how to tackle certain conditions and how to solve them in terms of sort of like where we are versus where we might be going. I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but there seems to be a sort of a shared fascination with the shitty architecture of housing right now. Um, we, everyone sort of mentioned it in one way or another as a, you know, sort of a generative point of departure. I, you know, if, our, if all our housing was 
better, would we still be having the same conversation? Uh, I, I think so, uh, which is maybe, uh, no, that's a really good question, I think, because uh, let's just say that what happens if everything's cool? Uh, I think that's part of what, I mean, if I were to reinterpret what you're asking, uh, which is why the title of our project was Five Normal Houses, because normal uh, is, a, is such a relative uh, concept. Uh, normal in the 1920s is not normal in the 1960s, and nor normal in 2015 is for sure not normal in 1985, I think. And uh, which is why I think, you know, for, for us to make new normals uh, and for the normals to, do, to be more excellent th than last normals is to place more uh, pressure on the challenges that uh, great thinkers and great designers uh, have to bestow, bestow upon themselves. And that's the kind of thing I want to do. You know, if, if everything's excellent, then I guess, you know, uh, it would be normal to take that for granted and, and the next things that would be on the edge would be probably more interesting. I mean, I think it is holding us back as a city that the, 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 the mayor or whoever has never gotten together and started creating a linkage between our best architects and our public housing projects. And if you look at great cities across uh, the world, you know, public housing is a venue for us to test ideas that are urban and new and emergent about how we see ourselves connecting to each other and navigating the future of, of the landscape of whatever city we're in. And so it's a shame, it's a damn shame, and Los Angeles would be a greater city if we had someone standing behind us and it wasn't a museum or a chess piece in downtown, but it was like a fucking thing that was political. And so, yeah, that's a problem. But I think we were just trying to argue for a new territory for housing and that it wasn't about this kind of banal like paradigm of density along the river, but that there was an, an agenda that we could promote that was alternative. But yeah, I think that we should have like really great housing projects, if that answers your question a little bit. Uh, I, I was born in Dublin, Ireland and grew up in a Europe as a child and went back there when I was up to the age of 15 years old. I was always inspired by European architecture and European housing projects. So as you say, uh, the social housing that you, the kind of support that you have to do that work in Europe is exponentially greater than here. L Los Angeles and the United States is a very conservative country and it's very difficult to break that mold. I mean, there's opportunities individually to put out some good work, whether it's with Skid Row Housing Trust, which we do, or Clifford Beers Housing, but that's one of every 50, and I agree, and I understand that. That's a problem, because it's not solving the problem with regards to the housing or the homeless issue in Los Angeles if it was about uh, permanent supportive housing. Uh, but Europe is a, there's, in my opinion, Europe is a great place to learn from, and uh, it's something that I've always, when I moved to Los Angeles, I w did not look to Los Angeles for inspiration, I looked to part of my background, which was a European background, and was always inspired by all the work that you see throughout uh, the world, for that matter. So I'm kind of an odd man out in that way. The work actually represents that in the work we do. We're not inspired by the LA school, per se, but we have more of a, a kind of a, a DNA, which is also looking at um, work that uh, is more of a kind of a broader viewpoint.
Give me a second to figure out my next question. Um, actually, I'm getting a high sign to open it up to the audience. So are there any questions for our panelists while, while we're sort of in a transition mode? Yeah. You're talking with regards to how we cleanse the, the kind of purification. There are types of products right now. You can even use solar components, which can take river uh, water and make uh, drinking water out of it. We just haven't caught up with that technology. So when I say we it needs to catch up, I mean that there's a variety of ways that you can tackle that. And uh, there's uh, products that um, can also, with regards to skins of buildings, that don't create issues that, as you describe, but components that actually purify the water. And it's quite a fascinating uh, uh, issues that you can find through 3D printed as well. Uh, materials that are appropriate from a sponge-like surface, which actually acts as a filtering system. And so most of our uh, proposals are looking at ways of capturing or hacking in to the storm drain system, pulling out the water through a filtering system, and then collecting it and actually redistributing or replenish uh, the, uh, uh, the aquifers. So this is a system that can work. It's just a matter of, we know that we could do it. It's just a matter of uh, being able to get the construction um, industry to be able to catch up. And that's why I think is critical. Because right now you can take water off a roof through a drain, uh, re-divert it to a cistern or a purification system and use that water. But we think that the buildings, since there's a need for housing and structure, use those as the opportunity to do it. Since you need to build housing, why not use that? So redefine housing. It could have a hybrid program, a hybrid type of architecture. It could change the city. It does not have to have the conventional housing we see. And if you could overlay this idea of infrastructure and housing together, you can think of the possibilities of how they would look. And that's kind of what we're pushing for. We think that that's very doable. Did that answer your question, kind of? All right, maybe one more. No? All right. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say maybe in response to what Lurkin was saying, too. Like, uh, in terms of human history and our relationship with water and architecture, let's think about Pompeii maybe for a second, because uh, the peristyle and the, uh, you know, the, t the two courtyard typologies are there to trap water, and we've been doing them. We're going to continue to do it, uh, just with more advanced technology. It's interesting for Los Angeles, given that you asked us to look at the river, which is, needless to say, looking at water. Uh, it's a global issue. And we're in a desert climate right now. We're in a drought that's going to continue. We're going to have our moments of El Nino's and water. Uh, but what an opportunity if we could solve this and find a way to actually capture, instead of just 2% of the water, but 50% or 60%, it's something where I just think people could look at the city and learn from it. So I think the opportunity exists here to do it. Great. Well, I can't help but you know, sort of think about Loger's primitive hut, and all we wanted to do was make sure we don't get wet. Uh, and now we're sort of taking solutions that or sort of capture water and other ways to live in the city sort of adjacent to it. And um, it's, ex it's an exciting time. Um, thank you guys all for your great comments. and. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mike the Poet, I think. <laughs>
Yeah, so uh, <coughs> this is a three-part three-part event. So uh, uh, part two of the event is our friend Mike the Poet. Where, where'd you go, Mike? Oh, there you are, okay. And uh, Mike uh, has been involved with the museum now for many years, uh, but he also performs uh, all over the city, and he performs really all over the country. Um, and uh, he's inspired by LA. He's, ins he's one of the more inspiring people that I know. He just loves the city, and, he, and he, you'll see why. Thank you, Sam. Hey, thank you to the panel. Give it up for the panel one more time, please. Who's to say what architecture is? Citizens, historians, or the critics? See it for yourself or read the theorists. Drive a truck like Mike Davis. Fortress architecture is geopolitics. Who's to say what architecture is? Sciarch or Architectural Digest? Frank Lloyd Wright or Lee Corbusier? See it for yourself or read the theorists. Frank Geary is a deconstructivist. The Bilbao effect attracts tourists. Who's to say what architecture is? Louis Sullivan's function of ornament? Jewel box banks and steel skyscrapers? See it for yourself or read the theorists. City knowledge comes from reconnaissance. Walk the streets like Jane Jacobs. Who's to say what architecture is? See it for yourself or read the theorists. This next poem is my ode to the LA River, and it was directly inspired by Mr. Lewis McAdams, the founder of the Friends of the LA River. I'm sure most of you already know the story, so I'm gonna just tell the very quick, uh, kind of the cliff notes of the story. Lewis McAdams started the Friends of the LA River in 1986 as a 40-year performance arts piece. And he had partied down here in the Arts District. This was really kind of the early scene of LA punk rock, late 70s, early 80s. It was a place called Al's Bar, where I'm sure you all know that. I won't, I won't, you know, I won't rehash history that most people know already. But uh, Lewis McAdams had lived in the 70s in a place called Bolinas. I'm sure some of you know that's just really, just a little bit north of San Francisco, but Bolinas is the kind of place right off Highway PCH where they will literally tear down, the, the locals will tear down the signs because they don't want people to find it. And all of the environmental poets in America, like Gary Snyder and all these guys, everybody was hanging out in Bolinas in the 70s. And so Lewis McAdams comes to LA late 70s, early 80s, and he finds the LA River, and he's just baffled by it, and he starts reading up on it and finds out about it. And him and uh, a few of his colleagues decided to try to restore the river. So he dresses up in a totem of every single species that was in the LA River, and he did this performance of poetry. So the Friends of the LA River started with poetry. He does a set of poems. The LA River, I mean, the Los Angeles Times completely trashes him writes a review and says, with friends like Lewis McAdams, the LA River doesn't need enemies. Very famous story. Um, and it's funny because 10 years later, there was 5,000 members in the Friends of the LA River. Um, 20 years later, they started building the pocket parks. And as you all know, now it's been 29 years, coming up on 30 years right now. And uh, there's still much more, room, there's much more room to do, obviously. But um, the Friends of the LA River started with poetry. And uh, I met Lewis McAdams when I was about 24, and I was doing my first LA poems right after I graduated from UCLA in my early 20s. And he was a super cool guy. So he, I've known him now about 16, 17 years. But uh, this is my ode to the LA River, dedicated to Mr. Lewis McAdams. I sing of a river damned, dumped, pumped, and diverted. I sing of a river they almost murdered. I sing of a river the people forgot. I sing of a river that flows from the rocks. I sing of a river rushing from mountain slopes, snow melt below Mount Wilson, the mouth of the arroyo. I sing of a river where the shifting bottom of soft sedimentary sandstones and clay mixes with gravel wash from seasonal runoff. I sing of a river less celebrated than world waters, but still powerful enough to wash away a village. I sing of a river that switched beds, 
underground moisture in the watershed. I sing of a river where much of the water never reached the sea, forming marshes, lagoons, and mud flats. I sing of a river with a huge underground reservoir beneath the San Fernando Valley. I sing of the river that built this city. I sing of a river that provided life for the Tongva tribe, later to be called Gabrielinos. They lived amidst the willows, edible berries, and sycamore trees. I sing of a river where steelhead were hunted by grizzlies. I sing of a river of an archipelago of birds, insects, and tiny green particles, foam bubbles, towering power lines, cottonwood trees, tadpoles, and morning frogs. I sing of a river where pelican songs echo off canyon walls. I sing of a river unknown to many, perhaps first seen in Greece or the Terminator. I sing of a river that's always been here. I sing of a river with tributaries like the Rio Hondo. I sing of a river with a confluence in the Arroyo Seco. I sing of a river weaving through crossroads of freight rails and intersecting freeways. I sing of a river below Metrolink and Gold Line trains. I sing of a river with a, betty, a bevy of bridges. Merrill Butler built bridges in the iconic city, beautiful tradition. I sing of a river where 44 pobladores established the Pueblo of Los Angeles in 1781 at the confluence in the name of Spain and King Carlos III. I sing of a river that was here long before SIG alerts. I sing of a river before concrete, squatter camps, and floating cans of beer. I sing of a river that was paved in concrete by the Army Corps of Engineers. I sing of a river res resurrected one pocket park at a time. Blades of grass break in concrete, riparian wetlands in the Compton Creek. Oleanders and Atwater reinstate the native garden. Lewis McAdams founded the Friends of the Los Angeles River with the power of the word. Like John Kinsella says, poems can stop bulldozers. Wetlands and washes once dominated, witness the return of the watershed. Is it the sunshine of the catastrophes, flash floods of the traffic? Something about Los Angeles makes music, makes magic. The music of Los Angeles makes artists get active. Behold the lore of LA authors, behold. Who's rocking the populace in the postmodern metropolis, LA authors. Starting with Charles Fletcher Lummis, Sunshine Looms Large in Literary Los Angeles. From the myth of Ramona, Pueblos, California Ranchos, Orange Groves, and the Royal Seco, expatriate artists of the 1890s brought the first sunshine wave of LA authors. And the boosters boost blew the trumpets on the Golden State's landscape, sun for 300 days, a cure for old age, find the fountain of youth in Los Angeles, hyped up pamphlets, let the world know, the land of the sunshine, the new Eden, it was manifest destiny. But it wasn't heaven for everybody. Besides the boosters, it was debunker socialists, expatriate poets, leftist screenwriters, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Louis Ademick, and Jake Zietlin. Nathaniel West, he was one of the best. The city in flames in the day of the locust. The underground intelligentsia lived in Echo Park bungalows. McCarthy called the Red Hill, and Sinclair yelled, Oil, oh, oh, behold, the lore of L.A. authors, behold. And Chandler and Kane were kings of writing noir detective novels in the lost streets of Bunker Hill, where Fonte celebrates staircase fire escapes and lost love. And long before Rodney King, there was a zoot suit riots. The LAPD and the Navy fools fought with the Pachucos and the Sleepy Lagoon. Kerry McWilliams knew the deal. It was fire factories in the fields. The palm trees are swaying in the wind as the sunset begins. It's twilight on Franklin, and what makes Sammy run? Is it the architectural illusion? Hollywood tycoons in the American dream. Robinson, Jefferson, Langston Hughes. If he hollers, let him go. Get your jazz on Central Avenue. Ray Bradbury wrote Martian Chronicles. L. Ron Hubbard wrote science fiction into Scientology. And Charles Bukowski, staying in single room occupancies, wrote sublime poetry about the plight of the modern man with a beer can in his hands. Venice beats off of Abikini. And every time I'm in Venice, Jim Morrison speaks to me. Behold the lore of LA authors. Behold, rocking like rockabilly car clubs, the Carpenters, the Beach Boys, Grease, Disco, and roller skating. And singer-songwriters in Laurel Canyon like James Taylor and Joni Mitchell sang the real deal in the Hollywood Hills, basking above Babylon and hedonism, before hippie folk maidens became pop rock musicians. And now we're rocking the Rainbow Room like Led Zeppelin, selling platinum, Radio Free Hollywood, Hotel California, the Doobie Brothers, play that funky music, white boy, behold the lore of LA authors, behold.
And Brett Easton Ellis tells us about Gilded Youth. They were snorting white rails in Beverly Hills, less than zero. Walter Mosley and Easy Rollins, the devil in the blue dress and Little Richard. Barry White grew up near Willowbrook. And Motown came out west with the Jacksons. And Louis McAdams, Doug Miles, he wrote The Birth of the Cool. James Elroy kept L.A. confidential. The Black Dahlia to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Magical Realism. Hunter S. Thompson's New Journalism. We're south of no north in the city of courts. Reeling in the years in the ecology of fear. Mike Davis and Magical Urbanism. You're like Joan Didion's White Album. Thomas Pinch into Luis Rodriguez. Thomas Pinch into Luis Rodriguez. Thomas Pinch into Luis Rodriguez. And L. George to Ruben Martinez. Wanda Coleman, Exine Cervenka. Check out the LA Sound Selectors. Punk Rock, Pop, Underground Poets, Urban Planners, Klein, Soja, Jella Biafra, Rollins, Ellen Maybe. Spoken Word Artists got trails blazing. Paul Vangelisti, John Thomas, Lawrence Lipton and the Holy Barbarians. Stuart Perkoff and Words of Razor Rips like Poetics, A Mic and Dim Lights. Beyond Baroque, Ginsburg got naked, folks. So welcome to the West Coast Poetry and Jazz Festival. The truth is stranger than fiction. It's surreal living in these conditions. William Gibson, science fiction, cyberpunks on super expressways, get over at copters every day. Hollywood loves the apocalypse. The coast is toast. Earthquakes, flash floods, El Nino, Armageddon, busted bridges. The waves are crashing on the edge of the continent. Is it the city in flames or is it another day in paradise? Is it sunshine or noir, Baywatch or Blade Runner? Stay tuned for another long, hot summer. Santa Ana warm winds keep blowing. The creative juices keep flowing. And the list of our L.A. authors keeps growing. L.A. authors are making music loud like Sunset Strip, rock and roll to soul. Doors, Van Halen, Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, Ice Cube, N.W.A. Dr. Dre, Farside, Snoop Dogg, Freestyle Fellowship, Hip Hop Metal, Bedroom Producers, Turntablists and Poets. Behold the lore of L.A. authors. Behold the lore of L.A. authors. Behold, behold, behold. Who's rocking the populace in the postmodern metropolis? L.A. authors. Mike the Poet, by the way, Mike Sonskin is his, uh, is his non-stage name. He's also a professor at Southwest College and at Woodbury, so he's a performer, poet, and he's also a, an academic, and we're really lucky to have him. So um, uh, anybody uh, that's, that's here that wants to, we have some empty seats now, so if anybody wants to fill in, please do. Um, I think we will, too, a little. Uh, um, and uh, I just wanted to give you a little bit, before we start our last panel, just a little bit more background about the show. Um, uh, th there are si as we mentioned, there are six teams, and uh, th these panels, uh, each one, are going to have uh, members from from teams that were were part of the show. Uh, th and the six teams were split into uh, the, the idea was to look at housing for LA and housing for a new LA, a, a, a Los Angeles that, as as Mike was talking about um, or alluding to, has changed quite a bit. It's a much uh, from from uh, LA has always been known as a housing center, but that sort of model that LA has become famous for is sort of outdated. And we're looking for new ideas for a city that's denser, a city that's now dealing with more transit, uh, a city that's dealing with a lot of congestion, obviously we both probably are experienced that just today. Um, a city that's uh, dealing with uh, issues of, uh, of water shortages and uh, environmental uh, warming and just a whole new set of challenges that uh, we think the housing models really needed to address. And that's what this show is about. So these six teams, um, well, first of all, this wall here is showing that this is actually happening now, and there's these are all firms that are uh, either uh, in the process of working on these projects that are all uh, real housing projects or they're already built. Uh, and then this is speculation, and this is the heart of the show over here. Um, and so three teams, we wanted them to look at areas that were sort of indicative of the new L.A., and areas that hadn't really been developed as the traditional L.A. model, either a hillside housing or sort of suburban development. So the, there's three teams. One is working along... One was working. One set was working along the LA River, who we were talking to before, uh, and that was Lorcan O'Hurley, architects who were working with uh, water issues. 
L.A. Moss over here and, uh, and uh, Jimenez Lai, uh, Bureau Spectacular. And then we had three teams uh, along Wilshire Boulevard, and those three teams uh, were PAR, uh, which was over here. Uh, we had uh, MAD uh, right in the middle, and then in the back there we had Y. So we have, um, we, we, we have uh, we're looking at every different angle we can. And the, 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 the basis of this show is not just looking at you know, interesting ways to, to, to do housing. It's really about LA and how LA is changing and how we can adapt to that. And I think that's what everyone that we were saying, talking to some of the firms before, what they nailed. They really got that we, you know, we, we're not just making something that, that is interesting and something that, that architecturally can, can speak to a lot of people, but really just captures what LA needs and it's very, very, very based in LA. Um, so we're really thrilled by that. So our last panel, second panel, uh, will be people that w will be uh, teams that worked along the uh, along Wilshire Boulevard, where the uh, metro uh, is expanding to, and eventually we'll get all the way to Westwood uh, sometime, I guess, in the next decade. Um, but it's a huge, huge, huge change for the city, and we we, we do need to develop a denser and, and more dynamic way of living. Um, so Danielle's going to introduce the panel. Okay. So as Sam said, this panel is looking at housing along Wilshire and the metro extension going to be moderated by Amelia Taylor-Hockberg, um, Editorial Manager at Archonnect. Um, so come join us. Uh, Jennifer Marmon, pa partner at PAR. Uh, Bob Dernberger, um, Objects Leader Workshop, Objects Workshop Leader at Y. And Priscilla Frazier, um, Senior Architect and Project Manager at LACMA, working on Zum uh, Peter Zumther's building. And we, we appreciate Priscilla joining us. She was not one of the, one of the team members, uh, our team from MAD. Uh, they're from China and they were not able to make it, unfortunately. Uh, so she's stepping in and we're really, really thrilled to have her as well. Thanks, guys. Um, I encourage everyone, if you're, not s if you're standing in the back, come and sit down. There's a few extra seats. Um, I'd also like to start out just by asking with a quick show of hands, who came here by Metro? Either rail or bus? Wow, okay. <laughs> um, what about like Lyft or Uber? Okay, okay. And then the rest I'm assuming are private cars. Or walking, walking? <laughs> walking or biking? Okay, <laughs> excellent. Um, so we're here to talk about the specific area on Wilshire and the residential developments that both um, PAR and uh, Y are kind of toying with. And um, LACMA is of course a uh, node that kind of is determining the atmosphere or helping determine the atmosphere that is being developed along this particular area. Um, and for those of you who haven't had a chance yet to see the exhibition, um, I was wondering if we could just go along the line and of course Priscilla, you can send this one out, but just give like a brief explanation of um, what your proposal was and kind of the core inspiration behind it. Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, we started by, uh, you know, looking, well, first of all, we wanted to work on Wilshire um, versus uh, the river um, because we were interested in connecting with the metro um, directly uh, with our proposal. And in thinking about site selection, um, I thought back to uh, some articles that I had read in the LA Times that Chris Christopher Hawthorne had written uh, regarding interest um, by Michael Govan of Vision to develop a housing tower on um, the site that we selected where the Fairfax Metro Station is currently under construction. And um, I was really intrigued by 
the potential of adding a lot of housing right in that area uh, because it's, it's a very central part of the city and um, would have the opportuni opportunity to connect with um, a lot of uh, office space as well as Museum Row and LACMA and to really have a mix of uses there. And so the, the site selection itself was our point of departure. Um, and then we were uh, really interested in, in proposing a high-rise building, a skyscraper, uh, with the thought of um, a, a future denser Los Angeles and being very sort of provocative with, with this notion and going very tall. So it's, uh, our proposal is 80 stories, 930 feet, which is the sort of extents that we could get um, our engineers for Happel to sign off on um, in a seismic zone. So that sort of set up our parameter. Bob? So um, a lot of our initial thinking was that technology is moving so fast and it's kind of outpacing zoning and it's outpacing a lot of what the city can do. So we were thinking, how do we address these issues of disruptive technologies like Uber, Lyft, you know, things that may potentially take cars off the road. And then, so we imagine, what do we do with this space that's left, you know, by all these ride sharing, you know, technologies. So <coughs> we kind of took that parking lane and then made micro housing, micro retail, you know, kind of granny flats and built it up in that space. But then also thinking about infrastructure, how do we <coughs> address infrastructure and housing, kind of what Lurk Lurkin was thinking about. Um, how do we fold that into one thing? To both make it more dense and also to integrate these kind of more fluctuating businesses that might not otherwise have. Right, I mean, you know, if somebody could rent a 200 square foot micro retail thing for their Etsy business, then, you know, they put that there or, you know, it's homeless housing, you know, because that's a big issue, I think, if you drive around Skid Row, like, it's really gotten worse in the past five years. So Priscilla, maybe you could give a quick uh, explanation of what you're doing at LACMA as senior architect and working with Peter Gumsa. Sure, um, so my role at LACMA for the last four and a half years has been um, a quasi owner's rep, I would say, liaising between uh, Peter Zumthor's studio and LACMA. So spending time in Haldenstein, Switzerland, uh, working with Peter and his team and then translating his ideas to the board and the staff at LACMA, and then looking out for our interests as Peter proceeds with his work. Uh, we're right now about to finish up schematic design um, at the end of the year, at which point we'll have another public issue of the drawings and plans. I know we haven't had one since 2013, but I'm <laughs> you seem pretty aware of what's going on based on the renderings in this <laughs> exhibition, which I've been really impressed by. It's nice to see our project as a reference point to realize um, this other work. And I know in general we were really thrilled about this exhibit because LACMA, um, unlike a lot of other museums, our visitorship is actually 70% local and 30% visitors. So for us, uh, density is extremely important because of course we want 
the new building to encourage more local visitorship, um, but we're hoping that it doesn't encourage more cars. <laughs> so any sort of dense public housing projects for us are good news. So I wanna go back a little bit and start out maybe with the history of public transit on Wilshire. Um, it seems as if that would have been an illogical place when rail first started out in, in Los Angeles for it to be on Wilshire. It's like the most, one of the most dense corridors of the city and comparably one of the most dense urban scenarios compared to other cities in the US. But for some reason, for many reasons, political and otherwise, it just didn't happen there at the beginning, now 25 years ago. Um, but now it is here and now it kind of feels like it's finally catching up maybe to a place where it can really service people and as Sam mentioned, like getting all the way to Westwood and kind of bridging in the disparate portions of the city in a m more exciting way. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak about your projects in regards to like the history of the area and um, regarding how you feel like kind of perpetuating that history of, of rail maybe for the better or pushing it forward through those projects. Um, well, I guess I would say that we we were really mindful of the, the polynodal character of Los Angeles. And when looking at um, what we imagined um, the future of you know, Fairfax and Wilshire might be in 20 years, um, we sort of looked to the downtown financial district as well as, um, let's say, Century City. Not so much that it would become a financial center, but that um, that the metro station would probably prompt um, higher density of development and, and um, through time bring in um, more uses and, and more buildings. So, you know, in our scheme, there's, there's just sort of one singular tower, but there, I think it's quite exciting to, to think about what the future could be there in 20 years, um, sort of surrounding all of the cultural institutions and um, you know, going a few blocks in either direction. And so that doesn't really speak about the history so much, but sort of the, the trajectory, the tra the trajectory so. and, and, and the possibility. And um, given that that part of the city, you know, from Beverly Hills all the way to, let's say, Western in uh, Cor uh, Koreatown is, um, fairly low density along Wilshire. I think that there's a lot of questions for many of us who are practicing um, architects or urbanists in the city, what what will happen now that the metro's coming in? And I mean, certainly it's not going to become Manhattan, but there will be change. And, and I think that's very positive for the city and very exciting. Yeah, I, in some of the research that we did early on, Wilshire was supposed to be a walkable boulevard and not really for vehicle traffic. I mean, granted it was horse traffic, but <coughs> that's kind of what we were hoping is that we could continue that walkable boulevard feeling, whether like you're walking up above or down below, but then moving a lot of the fast transit down below, which is, is what the, um, the Metro line would do. Could you talk a little bit about your wheel? I just feel like about there's the this like a big part of the exhibition that is kind of hard to relate if you haven't actually seen it, but could maybe speak to this like, you, you can sure. hear it. Well, I, I turned it <laughs> off because it, it got a little squeaky in the past two months. Um, but it's that it usually is that, say, 
five foot, four foot diameter? It's a six foot diameter oh, okay. by two foot wide ring okay. of Wilshire Boulevard that we kind of folded in on itself. We were really struggling with how to display this long, you know, Wilshire Boulevard. So how do you do it? And we kind of folded it up on itself in this Chris Burden-esque, you know, meets, I don't know, Pee-wee's Playhouse. <laughs> you can probably see that there's like a Band-Aid box used yeah. to stand in for yeah. some, some mid-level density thing. Right, well, the Band-Aid box is a CVS uh, small retail. <laughs> I didn't um, read your legend. Right. right, there's no legend. It's <laughs> we asked everybody at the office to bring in all their junk, and that's kind of what we had to work with, so. I like the kinetic aspect too because there's objects that move, that like, like ch make sounds or ch or um, interact with each other as the thing moves. But there's lots of jingling and you know, flapping around. And so, Priscilla, I feel like I'm just like adding an addendum to the major questions. But um, speaking with Lockman specifically, like being installed there in the '60s and seeing all this rail stuff come up around or before it, east of right. it, and trying and how Metro tries to kind of bridge it in with bus rapid transit and this stuff. How are you seeing um, the kind of reach out I slowly extending its tendrils into Lockman space? I mean, I think the cyclical um, parallels between the initial development of Miracle Mile uh, connecting downtown to that area primarily for the purposes of retail um, is interesting. Right now we're LACMA is very interested in connecting the downtown art scene to Museum Mile, and that's one of the reasons we're really excited about the Metro. Um, in terms of sort of retrofitting that area as more of a pedestrian zone, we've of course um, had a lot of success with the closing of Ogden and the opening of the BP, BP Pavilion and our Plaza Urban Lights area. Um, one of Peter's main aims with the new building design is to increase that openness of the park area and the porosity of the pedestrian access um, by condensing all of our gallery space to one level and then increasing it by about 40,000 square feet and then lifting it 30 feet off of the park level. Um, we've uncovered about two acres of park space um, and now there's no longer this, I think, pretty negative roadblock between um, the Page Museum and our West Campus, as well as the Academy Museum. It will now be completely accessible and open, which I think encourages what we're generally trying, what the Metro is trying to do and what the whole area is trying to do in terms of pedestrian traffic and openness. So I don't know if that answers the question. No, absolutely, I'm glad you brought up speci the specifics of Zumper's design because uh, isn't, will there also be kind of an equal access around the very horizontal uh, spread so that people won't need to necessarily go in through a this is where your car drops you off and you enter in this area, but rather you can just kind of come exactly. out. Exactly, uh, there, there will be two main entrances, um, one to the north end of the building going up to the exhibition level and one on the south end of the building across Wilshire off of Spalding. Uh, the idea is that we already have some really great east to west lateral movement, but this would now move people north to south. Um, the exhibition level will be the ticketed level, but what's great about I think about the design and um, public outreach in general is that the pavilions that structurally hold the exhibition level will be filled with all of our public amenities and accessible um, to the community and the neighborhood at all times, unticketed. So it's a nice, I think it's a gesture to 
the idea that we like the density in the area. We want to encourage it, and we want to encourage visitorship. Um, uh, does that mean that the um, park space will not be gated as it is now? Will there be more sort of porosity between the museum and the city? Yes, well, there will be <laughs> the removal of the wall that's essentially <laughs> there will obviously not be there anymore. So there will, at the very least, be visual access at all times. Um, but we are still, we're still working out how the security system is going to work because uh, Michael Govan does have this vision of art 24 seven, being able to walk your dog around the park and look in and see, um, see gallery space and see activities in the theater or education classes at all times. And that is what we're working towards, but then it becomes a question of, um, is it a physical type of security or is it a personnel type of security? How does that work? Is it something that we can achieve through different types of um, technological advances? And that's, that's for design development. <laughs> I think that raises a really interesting point that we haven't necessarily touched on, but how, if you're going to develop Wilshire specifically in this area as these um, kind of high-rise or high-density residential developments alongside open public space, how to balance not necessarily security solely, but interactions between private and public and responsibility for these entities to create these great spaces for presumably as many people as possible to enjoy along the Wilshire Corridor while also providing for the safety and the domestic enjoyment of the residents. Um, so is that something that you guys can speak to, it, to a little bit about your conceptions around creating um, useful interactions between private and public space on Wilshire without infringing on either party? Sure. Um, well, one of the uh, other motivations for going uh, so tall uh, on our site was that we wanted to maintain at least 50% open space. Um, as a direct relationship to the park-like atmosphere that LACMA has, um, given that the site is right across the street. And so if you, if you look at the site plan that we're showing, um, there is so, sort of a relationship um, with lot coverage um, on our site relative to what you see at LACMA. And we wanted there to be a sense of flow, particularly as people would be moving out of both um, the west and the east um, metro stops coming out, so they would they would exit out onto a park condition, and then they could move, um, you know, along Wilshire or go across to LACMA, and so we we wanted our site to have the same sort of feeling, um, public space quality, even though it's a private um, land, um, and then we you know we because we were integrating. Um, nature and, and green space uh, into the tower. Uh, we, we gave a lot of uh, as to how public that space should be. Um, and also sort of needed to consider the, uh, I guess, economics and, and pragmatics of, of um, who owns that space and how would that be financed if it were to be have a lot of public green space. And what we ended up um, doing was sort of trying to walk um, a middle ground where um, we integrated uh, in three zones up the tower with the, the sort of superstructure that, that uh, stabilizes the tower, these outriggers, um, that is public space. And then all of the other terraces are, are private space. Um, and we, we did treat the tower uh, as 
essentially a private building and um, weren't really trying to propose a sort of Asian style mixed use where you have a lot of an amenities um, integrated in, in the building because that really didn't seem um, like something that made a lot of sense in the area and in Los Angeles, in, in our opinion, perhaps in downtown, but not so much in that area. Um, so we were always thinking <coughs> of a combination of, <coughs> excuse me, uh, like micro retail and urban space, you know, parklets, like almost urban infill like garden spaces. So we kind of have it all jammed together in this crazy narrow, you know, nine foot wide space. So we're trying to do it all vertically. I mean, it's almost like a skyscraper on its side. <coughs> um, I like to think of it as like a cross between, this isn't disparaging, but the cross between the Grove and one Santa Fe. <laughs> we were thinking of the High Line and <laughs> something else. I, I like mine a little more because yeah. I have that yeah. other one covered. Right. But um, <laughs> no, but I think I think in your particular instance, there is a little bit more friction or potential friction around those issues because you're dealing with businesses that mm -hmm. are so fraught um, with in terms of public regulation and um, just whether these will be able to produce a a nice place to live for people right. if like you want your neighbor to be lifts uh, brick and mortar. And so how, if that's, is what was, maybe I can just ask, what was the intention? What did you imagine being the kind of lifestyle to be lived in that area if you were going to be surrounded by those types of businesses? Well, I think we were thinking it's transitional housing. It wouldn't be somewhere that you lived for 40 years in this, you know, 800 square foot small box that overlooks the traffic, but recent grads, in-laws you don't like that much. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of this is blue sky, just imagineering what we're doing and not thinking too prescriptively about design. We're more like, this is the hackable interface. You make it kind of what you need. You know, if you want to open a skate shop, you know, if you want to open a weird hot yoga studio that's 200 square feet, you know, you do that. And it doesn't last forever, you know, it changes into something else, kind of always evolving. It also brings up the question of, of demographics, of who kind of is the assumed inhabitant or like frequenter of these spaces. And uh, Priscilla, you spoke about LACMA being a very much a local uh, museum and that mm -hmm. most of its visitorship is from here, which is somewhat unique to yeah. the institution of, that, of similar institutions. Um, so I'm wondering maybe what, especially with all of these like somewhat infuriating pieces about like LA is just bringing everyone here now. Everyone wants to come to LA and it's like creative capital and it's so cool. <laughs> but there's just, it's kind of infuriating and annoying, but there is also this like assumed excitement around like new people are coming. They have expectations about density, public transit and LA changing. Um, and all of these projects have that kind of fresh optimism about this, this change. Um, so I'm wondering what kind of is the assumed audience here or the assumed inhabitants of these spaces? And we can, Bob, if you want to continue or Jennifer, if you want to go for it. 
or Brazil. Sorry, I, I'm sorry. I was, was going to talk a little bit no, about please. security or <laughs> safety within. I, th I think, um, and maybe this ties a bit into who's who's in this neighborhood and who it's attracting. But I think that at least at LACMA, the last couple of projects and developments have proven that density within a community and activity within a community, I think, is its own best security. I know that when we were installing levitated mass, so much thought went into the concrete and how we had this ramp that Michael Heiser was insisting wouldn't be lit in the evening and we wanted to keep it open after hours and we were just thinking, oh God, this is gonna be you know, completely tagged up and <laughs> destroyed very quickly and um, it wasn't. And when you compare that to LACMA West, now going to be the Academy building, the former May Company building, where there is no um, human activity very often, and of course that's going to change in the future, that area is perpetually vandalized and uh, marked up. And I think that there's still that, both of, uh, there is a respect and an excitement about the community and things that are going on there, but there are still these pockets that are very much desolate and abandoned. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm curious with your housing projects, who you had in mind coming, because I see the neighborhood is still quite polarized in, in many ways. Um, well, I guess, again, we were um, imagining who the demographic could be, um, thinking that um, there's probably a mix of both um, very local people that have been in LA for a long time that want to make a change, as well as you know young people moving in, and then um, probably some um, people that are multinational uh, that you know want a place in Los Angeles. And what uh, was important for us in thinking about the demographic was setting up flexibility uh, with the space planning um, in in thinking of how we would have a conversation with a private developer who, who would build such a building. Um, typically in Los Angeles, a building like that would be luxury high-rise building. Uh, it's very expensive um, architecture. Um, and we uh, put forth, in, at least in the writing and some of the diagrams, um, a, a proposal for socioeconomic diversity where uh, we would encourage a developer to um, build a, a wide range of unit types, everything from a sort of micro unit up to a full floor on the upper levels. And, and sort of looking to, as Lorcan was talking about, you know, uh, European multi, multifamily housing as um, definitely models of inspiration. Certainly for me, um, with, with my... Um, education and experience, I've always looked to um, European models for multifamily housing, and, and um, I think that there's a lot to be learned that we can adopt uh, and, and bring into Los Angeles when it comes to look, uh, trying to build higher density and thinking creatively um, how we can finance and what the pro formas are for uh, those typologies. Too bad we don't also have someone from MAD here for Mayan Song's project because of the, as you're saying, this influence from uh, other countries and what might pass as the, either the luxury urbanism or the standard urbanism of these types of high density projects. But um, Bob or Priscilla, do you have anything to add on, on this point? Um, <coughs> I think a, a lot of what we do at WISE 
starting with questions, you know, it's kind of in our name, why? So, I mean, if you look at the back, we've got this questionnaire, like what will LA look like in 2050? So I think it's a lot of getting stakeholders on board early and asking questions and figuring out, you know, we're not necessarily gonna design the future. We kind of need to get the stakeholders on board early. So it's a matter of getting the mayor's office, the Metro line, everybody on board soon. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how many people here are native LA people, anybody, show raise, of hands? Raise your hand. Okay, five <laughs> out, out of 50. So I don't know if we're the people that are supposed to design LA of the future. I think we need to get native Angelinos on board asking a lot of questions early on. And I'm getting the signal that it's time for some questions from the audience. So I think we should have a wireless mic that can be passed around if you have something to ask. Front row. I just wanted to jump right off of what you were just discussing and ask the question, uh, in a city that has a lot of resistance to density, uh, as this you know, metro line comes westward, what role do architects have in you know, convincing the public, in demonstrating to the public, in asking the public you know, what density looks like, uh, given the history of those residents not wanting it? Um, I, I think density takes a lot of forms in LA. There's, you know, the granny flat that LA Moss has kind of reworked in their scheme pretty well. Um, I personally live in multi-generational housing with, you know, the house in the front and, you know, the flat in the back. Um, it works for me. Um, we're, with our design, we're not being very prescriptive about what it looks like, but I mean, density is coming, like whether you like it or not. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, and that uh, was probably our main point of departure once we started thinking about uh, spatial strategies, design concepts, uh, because we we did choose to take on um, you know high-rise building, which uh, conventionally is is not a housing typology that Angelinos are are very interested in, and I think that's why we took it on. Um, and so, you know, we did a lot of sort of study models and explorations of um, what the, how, how we could make, reimagine a, a, a skyscraper in Los Angeles that would be very specific to the city. And um, what it came down to for us was two qualities that are emblematic of of single-family housing, or sort of this ideal of living in LA, um, which um, for us was individuality and and then connection to nature, and so we we tried to have the actual form of the building in integrate both of those things in a new way, and that's why the each each level is expressed and is stacked, um, and it it sort of breaks down um, this monolith into a more residential human scale and then um, through shifting those plates we're able to um, very simply integrate these large pieces of, of, of nature um, it's not exactly the backyard but it's more than the sort of conventional balcony um, and so yeah we were we were trying to get at those at, at that very question 
Okay, I think I'm next. Uh, sorry. Uh, so how do we uh, design new architecture that uh, addresses major issues like homelessness, low-income housing, and also the new generation and how they want to live, but also not take away from what's already been built along the Wilshire Corridor? Um, well, I mean, I think our proposal, which is very conceptual, uh, addresses both of those, like, it's micro-housing. I think the younger generation is more willing to live in a smaller space. You know, there's the whole popularity of tiny homes, as ugly as they are, you know, the kind of tumbleweed, tiny things. But I, I think there's a need for it. Um, I think a lot of people are getting tired of having six roommates, you know, and two jobs to, to make their rent. Um, housing is getting very unaffordable in LA quickly. Um, how this works in practice, you know, with the homeless situation, we haven't addressed, you know, directly, but I mean, we hope that if you get enough people on board, um, Skid Row Housing Trust, a lot of those, these kind of nonprofit groups that, you know, we can make room, especially if, as we imagine, like in the future there's fewer cars in LA, which is hard to imagine, but I mean, I, I think it is possible. So this question is more, maybe more directed at uh, Jennifer. So um, I, I remember the education that I received and the way that you talk about your work, it, it kind of reminds me of an aspect of the late 1990s and early 2000s, especially when we think about people like MVRDB. Uh, let's say, you know, there's a way that we can calculate something, something else rather that's happening around the region that, that would deserve a better architecture and there's an idea of better architecture. And so there's a relationship between means and ends. And uh, there's a way that we could present the material that would articulate better society as a Trojan horse, maybe. And that's also kind of what I see what you're doing in some ways, uh, which is, you know, a, a really like beautiful Trojan horse. So what, what do you think about this uh, maybe question or provocation uh, is what you do as a Trojan horse? Um, well, I, I definitely, um, during my, my education as well, um, was, was certainly influenced by a lot of um, what was happening in Holland, um, including MVRDB. Um, I think that where we are at now and um, with my practice in Los Angeles, it's um, the approach is, is different. Um, it's not so much data-driven. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know uh, if I would describe it as a Trojan horse. I guess, I guess in a way, um, I just try to be very straightforward um, and say, you know, here are some problems that we would like to try to address. Um, but we would, you know, kind of thinking back to the last panel and Mimi asked or, or, or her sort of commented about, you know, the visionary, the pragmatist, and the speculator. And I, I would echo sort of uh, what Lorcan said. I think we're trying to be all three of those things, a little bit of each. 
um, with that project. So we um, attempted to have a sort of visionary um, aspect, uh, but also to be very pragmatic um, on the one sense, and then to be speculative too, and to put forth a sort of provocation. Um, we, we were hoping that, you know, especially the imagery of this proposal would intrigue uh, the public, um, you know, who was exposed to the project, and, and that it might act as a, uh, you know, intrigue or attractor to this notion of living um, in higher density in, in LA and, and sort of promote that idea. Not, not to say that it needs to be everywhere because certainly there are a lot of strategies that we can use um, to deal with density and, and offer density. Priscilla, um, and I guess we should probably wrap it up pretty, uh, after that. I hate to ask the you last can, question. I think you can get to the side. Sorry, <laughs> I just realized that. I'm like, I'm going to ask a question and I'm out. Um, uh, I, so I, I know, yeah, I can drop the mic. Uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of museums have experimented with, uh, with housing, um, uh, MoMA being one famous example, but there's mm -hmm. plenty of museums all over the world, um, uh, and sort of a, as a way to for for one deal with funding and deal and deal with uh, the issues of uh, of uh, across the board, um, but you guys I know are looking at a space uh, at a space across the street from LACMA that may be a tower may not, uh, and I'm wondering if housing is on the table if that's something that you guys are considering. Um, housing is on the table as both a sacrifice that we like to brag about um, as well as a very speculative concept. I'm. I think we're all at LACMA happy that this exhibit, um, or at least the Miracle Mile part of the housing discussion, um, partly may have been inspired by a pretty casual conversation, actually, that Michael had with Frank Geary, <laughs> which sort of yeah, snowballed. So I hadn't heard about that one. <laughs> um, and frankly, I don't believe that conversation has been seriously followed up on since then. However, um, one thing that we keep driving home, especially with the county, is that the decision to cross Wilshire um, and use our Spalding lot, which is actually owned by the Museum Associates and which is on city land as opposed to county land, um, that's a sacrifice that we made in some ways uh, to avoid the tar pits and to be kind to our neighbors um, at the Natural History Museum. And we did talk about MoMA and we talked about using that site and that land um, for development, even potentially fund part of the project and ultimately made the decision that it is more important to make sure that we meet the amount of programming and square footage that we need for the new museum. So I, who knows if it will pop up in another capacity like the site that you guys are investigating, but for used now. To, used to be, uh, I believe, this museum site. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but I believe that for now the priority is our museum getting it done and making sure that it meets the requirements that the community needs in the longer run, um, perhaps not the financial needs in the shorter run. Um, I guess I can keep talking and <laughs> just thank everybody. Uh, it's like the disembodied voice, I like it. Uh, I uh, really want to thank all of our panel members, all of our uh, moderators, um, and uh, let's have a hand of uh, a round of applause for everybody.
thank you all for coming out. Uh, if you we're going to close up soon, but if you want to get a, a quick look at the show, uh, uh, please do. And um, thank you all for coming out. We really, really appreciate it. And we hope we think this has spurred a lot of conversation about the future of housing. And if uh, we can ask you to do one thing, it's just to keep talking about it. It's really important. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this Archonex Sessions bonus content. Special thanks to curators Danielle Rago and Sam Lubell for putting the exhibition together and inviting me to moderate the panel on Metro. And a huge thank you to BNO and Pasadena for helping record the event. Thanks again for listening.